This week on the Backtable Podcast. But I also think we have to be self-aware as a urologic community and medical community that we created a lot of these problems, this intensive, you know, got to find every cancer right away, treat it right away, you know, shotgun screening, advertising for screening. And, and let's be honest, a bit of the kind of medical industrial PSA, prostate cancer, financial complex plays into it individually and with institutions. To everyone's credit, we've made strides. Now we're not done yet, but it's definitely a way better landscape in 2022 than it was in 1992 or 2002. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Protect your most valuable asset, the skill and ability to practice your medical specialty. One out of three individuals become disabled during their career. Be prepared by establishing a specialty-specific disability insurance policy from the experts at DI4MDs. They represent all the major disability insurance companies that provide individual policies for physicians. Special discounts are available for all physicians, residents, and the military. Whether you have no coverage, or to compare and improve your current coverage, or take advantage of the new higher monthly benefit, contact them today at www.di4mds.com. Again, that's www.di4mds.com, or call them at 888 934 4637. Again, that's 888 934 4637. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to, to introduce our guest today, Scott Egner from the University of Chicago. Welcome to the show, Scott. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. How about you, Aditya? I'm good. I'm so excited to, to have you on, Scott. I've heard you talk about PSA screening and prostate cancer a couple of different times, and you know, just absolutely love your perspective. And you know, clearly as a urologist, this is something we see day in and day out. Just yesterday in clinic, I was thinking about this episode. I mean, the varied practice patterns, the kind of crazy things that I think transpire both among primary care physicians as well as urologists is really mind blowing. And I'd venture to say that PSA screening is probably kind of at the top of that list. Agree. It's all over the map, which is a tremendous opportunity to talk about, share our thoughts and improve things. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I want to just jump on into it. PSA screening, if you look at the various different recommendations, the American College of Physicians, the American Academy of Family Physicians, the AUA, the American Cancer Society, it's all over the place. And, you know, what I hope to convey to our audience today are, you know, some practical practice points that urologists such as yourself with expertise in PSA screening have an opinion on. And maybe let's just start with your rules of engagement. Perhaps just a comment on shared decision-making. What does that mean to you, Scott? Yeah, there's the utopian version and then there's the realistic version. Utopian would be a really well-informed, lengthy discussion, video, handout, where you really get comfy and take a deep dive and maybe even a multi-visit discussion on whether they want to get screened or not. Every practitioner on this listening realizes that that's not practical. So I condense it down. There are some resources that can be helpful, websites, handouts. Not everyone needs to be screened, but I really try to get the patient's view on 
you know, their health and screening. Most people choose to do it, but it is an important discussion rather than just reflexive screening of everybody. Yeah, I think that's fair. And the AUA has a pretty nice white paper on shared decision-making since it is so prevalent in our field. I think it's worth taking a look at and a quick read at. It's really, really well done. So clearly when we talk about PSA screening, we're trying to balance the benefit of screening early detection versus competing risks of mortality. And do you use any actual formal life expectancy calculators in your practice? I don't routinely use them, though I do occasionally refer to the social security tables, which have some valuable information. What I do remember is that median life expectancy for a man in the United States doesn't drop below 10 years until he gets to be 77 years old. So it's really important to understand, is he healthier than the average guy, not as healthy? And in the screening studies that did show a benefit to PSA screening, the mortality curves didn't start to diverge until eight or 10 years. So as we all know, it's useless to screen someone unless they have a realistic chance of living eight, 10, 15 years beyond when you're meeting with them. I agree. I think it's a nice tool that exists, but many times I feel like our background, our gestalt of is this patient healthy or not, likely to live or not with that maybe 77 and 10 year life expectancy being quite helpful. Many of the guidelines on prostate cancer screening talk about risk stratification. And for you, what constitutes a high-risk patient? Yeah, there's many different things that go into that decision. So a higher-risk patient is someone that has a legit, compelling family history of prostate cancer. Not my brother and my dad were diagnosed with early-stage, you know, screened prostate cancer. But someone that had metastatic disease or over and over, you know, many men are having prostate cancer. Additionally, whether there's a family history of ovarian, pancreatic, breast cancer plays into it because there may be a germline mutation, which we're checking more regularly. As you know, baseline PSA is incredibly informative, particularly in the years before BPH becomes a confounder and you can risk stratify someone. PSA density, estimating how big or small their prostate is, plays into things. African ancestry appears to be a factor, but there's some really cool data recently that at least for equal access and equal quality of care, that outcomes are the same. But nevertheless, incidence rates do seem to be strikingly higher. So that does play into things as well. Yeah, I think it's an important point, you know, recognizing that it's not just prostate cancer, but the kind of adenocarcinomas associated with prostate cancer, breast, endometrial, ovarian, pancreatic, as you mentioned. And my interpretation is the NCCN guidelines does recommend genetic testing when you have a family history of any of these particular cancers. And as an aside, I think this is one thing as urologists that we could certainly do a better job of just being cognizant of, you see introductal histology, high-risk patients, Ashkenazi, Jewish ancestry that we're trying to really get these patients in to see our colleagues in genetic counseling. All right. So if I may summarize, it's going to be in terms of a higher risk patient, African-American ancestry, and then a family history, as you mentioned. Is that fair? Baseline PSA is also incredibly informative on how regularly or infrequently you want to screen them. All right. So this is going to kind of jump us right into it. So in a patient who's never had a PSA, you've got no risk factors, let's just say, and no baseline PSA. When do you typically start screening? Yeah, there's no magical age or set rule. 
and you individualize it a bit based on their health, their intent, whether they want to screen or not, obviously is the starting point, but somewhere between 45 and 55 would be reasonable to check a baseline PSA. This randomized study from Europe that showed a benefit started at age 55. It's very reasonable, practical to get a baseline in their upper forties, lower fifties, see where they're at. If it's higher than it should be, you always, always, always want to repeat it. There's very good practical info on what to do with that. The median PSA for a man in his forties is about 0.6 man in his fifties is 0.9. The NCCN has integrated age specific a bit into their guidelines. But based on how they compare to the median, I tell guys, come back in a year, two years, three or four years. Yeah, that's that's absolutely helpful. And so this kind of early baseline PSA, some of the numbers that you know I have in my head, if it's above 1.5, it's certainly got my attention. And that's one that I'm going to be a little bit more aggressive on. If it's less than 0.6, I feel a little bit safer, kind of going on a two to four year plan, if you will. And if it's closer to... 1.6, you know, maybe not do anything more than recheck it a little bit more carefully. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And as you know, spending time in this space, I think it's the art of medicine as well. And there's a lot of nuance to it. And it's not just some absolute number. And if you're above that number, you go to the next step in your algorithm. There's a lot of things that go into that decision and counseling. And it's always an interplay with over-detection versus appropriate detection. The 1.5 threshold makes a lot of sense to me, but there are some people who advocate everyone with a PSA over 1.5 need action. And I would push back on that. And if they have a family history or African-American ancestry, and again, they're de novo, does this change much or are they still just kind of falling into that 40s, 50 baseline PSA range? Yeah, more likely to check earlier, more likely to see them more regularly, but no hard and fast rules with it. Okay. So you get your baseline PSA, which one of the things I've noticed is certainly with the dissemination of testosterone replacement clinics, often for young men is that they're getting started on TRT, their hemoglobin hematocrits, as well as PSAs are being checked. And you've got these, you know, fairly young people coming in with PSAs and kind of this, you know, two and a half, three range, let's say a, a 38, you know, 42 year old patient. What do you do in those scenarios, Scott? Yeah, you probably see more of that in Southern California than we do in the in the great Midwest, but I have seen some of those patients. And often, as long as it's not an egregiously high or steadily rising, I tend to slow play those because you have to remember the overwhelming majority of prostate cancers are slow growing and take place over years or decades. You obviously want to find the early, really aggressive ones but it's almost a unicorn. You're going to find that in a 38 to 42 year old. Obviously the DRE plays in and you put together a sensible game plan, but rarely if ever, is there some immediacy to it? Got it. And, you know, certainly I would say that many of the patients that I see, and perhaps one of the things that's just common practice among primary care physicians is, you know, this PSA threshold of four. And in the sixties, I think that is one of the thresholds that's been described but for patients that are referred to you with a PSA, you're not necessarily counseling them on, you know, are we going to obtain this? Do you look at age-adjusted PSA in that context as well? 
Absolutely. And I tend to think of it as knucklehead medicine in the days of yore where, you know, if your PSA was 3.9, oh, we'll see in a year. And if it's 4.1, oh, we got to go racing into a biopsy. Cancer biology doesn't work like that. As you and everyone knows, there's a spectrum of risk. It's as your PSA gets steadily higher, the higher the likelihood of you having real disease. I try my best to put together all the pieces of input, free PSA, gets checked every single time when I'm doing screening. It's incredibly powerful. The size of their prostate and their PSA density, their PSA trends. I check a lot of urines to make sure there isn't bacteria causing it. And we put that all into the soup and make some decisions based on it. All right. So some of the questions that I get all the time are, Doc, I went on a bike ride or, you know, I had sex the night before. You mentioned rechecking PSAs, but what are your kind of counseling to a patient when they're asked, you know, why is my PSA potentially elevated? What are the causes? Yeah, I explained some guys genetically make more PSA than the average guy. There can be inflammation, there can be infection, and then there can be inciting events. So ejaculation has been shown to increase the PSA on average by about 10%. So if they don't want to ejaculate for a few days beforehand to do everything possible, great. A gentle, normal digital rectal examination does not increase the PSA. That's been shown in a pretty large study that was published in JAMA decades ago. Bike riding makes a lot of sense. That should jack up your PSA. Some really good studies show. No, it does not. Professional cyclists before and after a long ride doesn't make a difference. So that's more myth than reality. Got it. So you talked about DREs. Are all patients coming in with an elevated PSA or for prostate cancer screening get a, getting a DRE in your hands? No pun intended. Yes. I examine all or nearly all. Are there people that come through where we don't? Probably. But I do think it's still important to feel the prostate. And I'm not just feeling it for nodularity or induration. I really want to know the prostate size. There's some beautiful studies that are strikingly powerful in the role of PSA density and the likelihood of having high-grade prostate cancer. And the curves could not be any more striking in that the higher your PSA density, the higher the likelihood. So, you know, I try to estimate the size of the prostate. I put it in the note and that definitely factors into my clinical care. Yeah. And as I'm sure you're aware, the ability of us to accurately estimate the size on a DRE also leaves something to be desired. It can be tough. I mean, especially in a larger prostate, I feel like anything above 40 grams, you're just kind of taking a guess of what lies cranially. Do you ever get transrectal ultrasounds as a part of your evaluation? I don't. Do you? No, I've never done it. It kind of seems like a pretty bizarre step to me, to be quite frank. And I'm a pretty broad user of MRIs, though, I will say. How about yourself? Yeah, I, I know this sounds goofy, but I often think and explain to a guy, I'm looking for reasons I don't have to do a biopsy on you. And that starts, you know, if they come in with an elevated PSA, we integrate all those things that we just talked about. We're always, always, always going to repeat it. 20 to 40% of elevated PSAs return back to normal with doing nothing. Never give empiric antibiotics. We'll repeat it a couple months later. We look at the free PSA. If I'm still concerned based on that, we'll go to an MRI. There's obviously other secondary urine or blood biomarkers that can be used. If there's good news in that, 
and we get, you know, a PSA density, there's no striking lesions, then oftentimes we'll sit tight there and continue screening. But yes, the next step after that is doing a biopsy to rule out higher grade disease. Okay. So if they have a normal screen, you know, either whether that's their first PSA or they've repeated it and they've kind of come down well within the normal range, how do you follow those patients? Yeah, it depends on age, health, what their cancer risk profile is based on all these other things I've mentioned. But I'll see them either in a year, two years, and sometimes I say three or four years. The AUA guidelines suggest every two years where you can save the same number of lives based on modeling, but minimize the number of unnecessary biopsies or treatment. Our clinic is set up where we can make an appointment for two years down the road. If they're a little bit higher risk, we'll obviously see them in a year. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that I've certainly seen plenty, I'm sure you have as well, are, you know, these Q3 month PSAs and, you know, especially kind of pre-telehealth. I'm like, gosh, this poor patient, they're taking off time to get a lab test and then go see their physician. You know, that's that's real time at the end of the day. And, you know, it just kind of occurred to me with telehealth and the inability to do a physical exam. I wonder if there's anything kind of out there regarding kind of a clinical stage migration just because DREs haven't been done. But I wholeheartedly agree. I kind of find that patients have a hard time with four years. They kind of feel like they're getting kicked down the road and they're nervous. Uh, even two years, I think, is a tough pill to swallow. I generally start out with, hey, let's we'll have you come back in two to four years. I literally show them the guidelines so this isn't perceived as me trying to, again, kick the can down the road. But if it is somebody higher risk, if they're teetering right at the margin or family history, then I, I think it annually makes perfectly good sense. And what about stopping screening. You know, if you've had a couple of normals, you started out with a patient in their fifties or sixties and, you know, fast forward, how does that conversation go? Yeah, I'm really glad you bring it up. I think that we have a tremendous opportunity to minimize over-detection and over-treatment by knowing when to stop. And the unnecessary screening is rampant. There's all sorts of data and papers out there showing people that have terminal cancers, 20% of them are still getting PSA screening. We wrote a paper years ago where our oldest and sickest men in the United States, 30 to sometimes 40% of them are getting a screening PSA. And it's not just, oh, a blood test. There's downstream effects to that where they get chased with biopsies and other impact. So the practical data on that is obviously when their age or health starts declining, it's not, oh, you're too sick, you're too old. It's a discussion of there's such low value to PSA screening, let's minimize it or discontinue it. There's data that came out of Baltimore that if a man is 75 years old with a PSA less than three, the likelihood of dying of prostate cancer approaches zero. And then there's really cool data from Sweden in an unscreened population at age 60, the median PSA is 1.0. And if your PSA is less than 1.0 at age 60, the likelihood of dying from prostate cancer over the next 25 years is 0.2%. So I dramatically dial back on guys that fit that criteria. They might be one of those, oh, check a PSA in five years with your primary care doc. Also perfectly database to discontinue. Yeah, I think that's important. And framing that conversation, as you just mentioned, is critical in, in my opinion, because now you're dealing with patients in their, maybe into their seventies and you're talking about mortality and, you know, you're kind of interfacing with these things that I don't know, isn't necessarily pleasant for a patient. So I think to put it in that context is, you know, my opportunity to help you now is becoming fairly small. 
versus you're too sick and old where there's not much that I can do for you. So you've mentioned PSA density a couple of times. Is there a number, Scott, that's overall considered favorable in your opinion? It's interesting. We, we had a group discussion this past week on a guideline crew we're putting together. Obviously, the most commonly referred PSA density is 0.15. And that's in a, it's been used in a screening setting. It's been used to help select people for surveillance. Again, back to cancer biology and kind of the serum biology of prostate cancer. There's not some magic threshold where it's black and white and above or below is a green light, red light. It's a continuum of risk. So it's all over the map. Lower is obviously better. Higher is obviously worse. I don't have a a red line somewhere where it's automatic, but it is really important information to integrate into the decision. And my sense is there's many urologists that don't integrate PSA density or even free PSA into what's in a really important decision for the man sitting in front of you. Wholeheartedly agree. I mean, whether it's active surveillance for grade group two with a small pattern four, to me, I'm kind of running through your pros list and your cons list. And PSA density is absolutely one of the factors that we weigh in here. If they've been on a 5-alpha reductase inhibitor, do you adjust for that? Yeah. So as you do, and most of the audience knows, you double it. You obviously have to make sure they've been on it for six months and that gets factored in. And then for free PSA, I'll be honest, Scott, I've kind of moved away from free PSA as a part of my test ordering. Are you still kind of above 25 is considered favorable? Below 10 maybe has your eyebrow raised a little bit more and in the intermediate is a little bit more ambiguous. Yeah. Back to my continuous risk soliloquy on, you know, it's uh, many points on the curve, but I do use free PSA every single time that I'm screening somebody. It's not valuable once someone's on surveillance. So I stopped checking it then. And obviously there's no role after treatment, but the free PSA as a standalone or as part of the 4k score, the prostate health index, really important information. In fact, it's the main driver of the prostate health index in the 4K, if you look into the nuances of the AUC curves and what bumps things up more than others. So it's really cheap, it's easily accessible, and it's really powerful. Yeah, and uh, I was gonna just kind of pick your brain here in just a moment on some of the kind of the next generation options, but even just kind of sticking to PSA, how about a pre-biopsy velocity? Yeah, it, it makes a lot of intuitive sense that the more rapid rise in your PSA, the higher risk you are, and that's, where data comes in and it's cool and important to look into. So both in large European studies and American studies, if you look at PSA velocity, once you know everything else about a man, his total PSA, his age, his DRE, his family history, PSA velocity drops out as a predictor. And the reason for that is it so heavily co-associates with what the total PSA is. There's also studies that show the more rapid your rise has been year over year in your PSA, the more likely it is not cancer. It's more likely spurious or inflammation, hence always repeat it. So I tend not to integrate PSA velocity in. Now, if year over year, every time it's rising, I think that's different than a one or two year rise. So that's how I think about PSA velocity. I think that's good intel. And, you know, we know as we approach 50 that the size of the prostate increases about 5% per year. And, you know, the differential contribution of benign prostate tissue to PSA versus cancer, I think is a bit unknown. But in general, I would say, you know, trying to talk people off the ledge when their PSA velocity is higher than they'd like is, 
you know, something that we ought to be doing. So we've kind of talked about it really is an amalgamation of different things. It's the absolute PSA number. It's the family history. It's the age. It's the uh, free PSA. So when you've ruled out infections, you don't mess around with antibiotics unless there's compelling evidence. When you've detected an abnormal screen, what comes next? There's many different equally appropriate algorithms. And there's people who use secondary biomarkers such as 4K or the prostate health index, which are in blood, XODX or select MDX, which check microRNAs or exosomes in the urine. And those have all been shown through really well done studies to lower the likelihood of a man needed a biopsy while still capturing nearly all of the men that need to be diagnosed with their prostate cancer. I tend to use MRI. I think of an MRI as an imaging and functional biomarker where it gives us some size, some potential targets. So I tend to use that as the next fork in the road. If that MRI is normal based on internal data that we have, as well as other studies, as long as there's no lesions, we continue to screen. If there are lesions, they go to a biopsy. Okay. So in general, if their non-next-generation tests are normal, are you typically going to get something like a 4K score or a PHI or a PCA3, select MDX, or if they're PSA6 and they're 60 years old, no other risk factors, are you moving forward to an MRI? I move to an MRI, but perfectly reasonable to have other approaches. I mean, you, you can't get all of these. There's price implications. There's hassle implications for the patient. As long as there's some sensible roadmap database, I do think some intermediary between your PSA and jumping right to a biopsy that makes sense. Yeah. When I came out of fellowship, I had kind of a non-algorithm where it was, you know, taking in the whole gestalt and suffice to say, if I wasn't worried, I would get a 4K score. And if the 4K score is positive, I'd go on to an MRI and then I had this kind of algorithm where if they were both favorable, I felt okay continuing on surveillance. If one of them was concerning, I'd proceed with the biopsy. And actually, there's some pretty interesting data from University of Miami and a variety of other centers that actually look at the kind of differential contribution of select MDX, PHI, PCA3 with an MRI. And I kind of reviewed that in preparation for our podcast, and I was fairly surprised that the value added of a next generation biomarker plus an MRI seems to be pretty real. Agree. And it, and it makes intuitive sense. They're looking at different things that has to be balanced with some type of financial stewardship. And I'm not the exemplar of that. There's obviously a lot of tests that can be done at every step along the way with screening or post-diagnosis with prostate cancer. And I do think either one or two intermediary steps to minimize the number of men that are undergoing biopsies and minimize the rates of diagnosing Gleason 6 or grade group 1 are laudable no matter how you do it. Yeah. I mean, in my practice, before I'm going to biopsy, barring any contraindications, et cetera, they're pretty much going to get an MRI. And early on, I think like many people, my practice was extremely risk averse where, you know, I'd kind of say, hey, there's a 10 to 12% chance of a missed cancer, even if your MRI is clean. I am risk averse. My preference would be to still get the biopsy. I think that's evolved over time where, again, you're looking at risk factors and density and 
all of that. But if they have a family history of a prostate cancer hereditary predisposition syndrome in their family, or if they're African-American, I'll typically, and if they're young, healthy, I should say, would still advocate for a biopsy, systematic biopsy, even with a clean MRI. Thoughts? Yeah, that's sensible. Totally reasonable. So as MRIs have become more ubiquitous and they're generally covered by, I think, all insurance companies, what are your thoughts on primary care physicians ordering an MRI for an elevated PSA? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack in this discussion with MRIs. In general, they've been a positive introduction. However, there's a lot that goes with it. There's definitely a stage and grade migration. You're oversampling certain areas. The quality of MRIs are all over the map, depending on where they're done, depending on who's reading it. They're incredibly expensive. There's some editorials that have been written on the massive cost of MRIs. We don't have any good real long-term data that the integration of MRI changes the long-term outcomes of men with prostate cancer. Those studies will obviously never be done. That being said, we all use them. We all use them regularly, but they're not this magical and, you know, hundred percent accurate test that you can hang your hat on every time. Yeah, I think, I think it's fair. I mean, they're exciting. I think there's, you know, newer technologies, differential ways to interpret the existing data that is going to move the needle. My sense is it's going to be incremental, but who knows? I gave a talk on PSA screening to primary care physicians here at UC San Diego. And I, I asked them, you know, are you going to feel comfortable getting this report, which is going to have, you know, this PIRADS rating system and synthesizing that with your patients, you know, especially in the era of epic and messages and, you know, everybody wants to know what happened yesterday. And actually the response I received is yes, it's here's the test. You've been referred to a specialist and they're going to explain the test to you. But if you order an MRI and you've got a PIRADS three, four or five, what does that kind of mean, you know, in terms of detecting a clinically significant cancer? Yeah. In general, PIRADS three, four and five, a good benchmark is you should find about 20%, 50% and 80 to 90% of grade group two or higher when you're doing biopsies. And that's a good quality control for both the MRI sequences, who's reading them and your targeting. We almost always biopsy fours and fives, at least two to three samples per biopsy along with the systematic. Currently, we also sample PIRADS threes, but as you're aware, they don't all have to be sampled. And there's some good ways of risk stratifying that based on PSA density or even phi scores have been integrated into it. And I think we're going to get to a place where we don't have to routinely biopsy many PIRADS threes. Yeah, I think, again, that's been kind of an evolution, even as good, high quality data, promise and precision has come out over the course of my attending hood, where I can feel a little bit, a little bit better about watching a three and not getting too excited. And if their MRI is clean, how does that conversation go? It depends on their other risk profile, but for your garden variety guy, I say good news on the MRI, really low likelihood of having a worrisome or clinically meaningful prostate cancer. I'll see you in X number of months or years. Got it. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think that's kind of the way it's heading in the absence of risk factors. That's precisely what I would recommend as well. I also think it's important when they have a lesion and they're going for a biopsy, at least what I've found useful is in discussing the biopsy, I tell them there's three main categories of what we'll find on the biopsy. 
The most likely often is no cancer. The second most likely is a small wimpy cancer that we're highly likely to monitor. And the third, and the only reason we're having this conversation is in case we find something that might warrant treatment. But I say that because my sense is that increases the uptake of active surveillance when you've pre-prepped them that we may find something that we don't necessarily have to jump in and act on rather than calling them, hey, you have cancer, and then trying to have that discussion. Yeah, it's a great point to just kind of preempt and, and prophylact a scenario where they're developing a, a low-risk prostate cancer. I think that's something I can certainly uh, take away from. We talked a little bit about some of these unique clinical scenarios, including young men with elevated PSAs picked up at uh, testosterone replacement therapy, monitoring. How about older, infirm patients that are sent to you with at least moderately concerning PSA, let's say, you know, 20 to 30? Yeah. So the intent of screening obviously changes dramatically in those men that are older, have some comorbid conditions. And again, there's no easy black and white algorithm or solution to it. But depending on all the factors that we've already talked about, it's somewhere between, you know, a discussion of, hey, let's just stop checking the PSA. Sometimes it's a letter or even a phone call to the primary care physician to make sure we're on the same page. Sometimes it's slow playing it and easing their mind. And then there absolutely are occasions where I would advocate going down the diagnostic algorithm, because if you do find a meaningful cancer, it may impact their quality of life or quantity of life. And it may be something you and that man need to know about. Totally fair. I think it's a tough situation. There's not a one size fits all. You know, of course, you have healthy patients and the sicker patients, you know, especially as you get into these PSAs, 30s, 40s, you know, if they have metastatic disease, they would benefit from intervention or at risk of depend of developing some local symptoms, you know, something you may want to know about. Yeah, I think it's absolutely, you know, kind of case by case. I think rushing in and doing anything invasive is something we would generally agree on is maybe not advisable. One of the things that's amazing about the urologic community, the scientific community is, you know, these continuous efforts to do better, screen smarter. And would you want to comment a little bit about some of the various polygenic risk scores that are available, whether you use those and maybe even just a brief intro on what those are? Yeah. So first want to agree and make some macro comments. We've made tremendous strides over the last 30 years with screening to fine tune it and not use that shotgun approach where every man gets a PSA every year until the day they, you know, until the year they die. But there's also frustration that it hasn't moved quicker. And there's a lot of tools that we have available and there will be even more that we don't even know about at this time. Polygenic risk scores are based on SNPs and really good data from many different groups in different parts of our country and overseas, showing that these germline SNPs are really powerful to predict your likelihood of being diagnosed with a meaningful prostate cancer over your lifetime, totally independent of your family history. So it augments and supplements that information. They're not widely used, they are widely available. I do get the sense that we're gonna be using them more regularly. I don't routinely, we do have a clinical trial that's up and running where we integrate it for certain men, but I think you're spot on. Yeah, it's fascinating. 
you know, I think we typically think of BRCA, ATM, kind of these heavy hitter prostate cancer associated genes. Then there's all these other genes that just maybe have a different prevalence, which have been evaluated in very elegant genome-wide association studies. And when you look at these kind of cumulative scores, study after study after study suggests that you can really increase the sensitivity of and specificity for the diagnosis of a prostate cancer when you add on standard parameters, including PSA, family history, and so forth. So um, it's exciting. I, I do agree. I think it's kind of its nascency. It's maybe not gotten to the same level of things such as 4K or PHI, but exciting. And, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that we're doing a better job of kind of dialing in on who to screen. And the shot heard around the world was really in 2012 with the United States Preventive Service Task Force said PSA screening gets a grade D recommendation. I think that was a really a kind of a call to everybody with so many things coming together, overdiagnosis, introduction of active surveillance, um, you know, kind of the harm we're doing to people. And I'd like to think that the urologic community has really taken that on in a real way to be like, let's really focus on helping the people that we can actually benefit. Completely agree. I think in the big picture, it was a positive. You know, the initial blowback and guttural response was, this is not database, this is inappropriate. And that's true. But I also think we have to be self-aware as a urologic community and medical community that we created a lot of these problems, this intensive, you know, got to find every cancer right away, treat it right away you know, shotgun screening, advertising for screening. And, and let's be honest, a bit of the kind of medical industrial PSA, prostate cancer, financial complex plays into it individually and with institutions. To everyone's credit, we've made strides. Now we're not done yet, but it's definitely a way better landscape in 2022 than it was in 1992 or 2002. Absolutely. Yeah, as I was kind of preparing for this, Scott, I was thinking about PSA screening myths and pet peeves. I know you've kind of got a pretty wonderful talk on prostate cancer myths. Any any PSA screening myths that you would like to dispel today? You know, we talked about a bunch of them, just to put them all in one place. You can do a normal DRE and check the PSA afterwards. Always, always, always recheck a PSA. Don't give empiric antibiotics for an elevated PSA. If you think there's an infection, prove it and treat it. We have an ongoing trial now where we're looking at the role of empiric anti-inflammatories. I'm curious to see if that plays a role. Uh, free PSA is incredibly powerful. Bike riding doesn't influence or horseback riding doesn't influence your PSA level. So those are kind of the take-home ones that come to mind. Yeah, and I would say if I had a top of the pet peeve list, it's empiric antibiotics for somebody who doesn't have a proven or symptomatic infection. That's useful. And you kind of touched on anti-inflammatory. And I think an area of excitement, of course, has been trials like the SELECT trial. But as our understanding of some of the naturopathic options to reduce inflammation, maybe create a bit of a more hostile microenvironment for cancer cells to grow mature could be something, you know, down the way, which to me is extremely exciting because it gives the patient some active participation possibly in their prevention of prostate cancer development. And I'm sure this is something you get a lot, Doc, what can I do to kind of minimize the chance of me developing cancer? Do you have any 
response to that question? It's so sexy and so attractive. You, I, and everyone else would love to know for ourselves and for our patients. There's some ecologic and epidemiologic data that all sorts of things may potentially lower the likelihood. You know, diet-based, there's a recent one that came out of Miami on a plant-based diet or vegetarian appears to lower your PSA. Does that mean you have a lower likelihood of developing meaningful prostate cancer? You know, exercise obviously plays a role. You mentioned select. Vitamin E and selenium were once thought to lower the likelihood. Neither of them do. One of them actually slightly increases it. There's a whole complex of, you know, probably hundreds of millions, if not billion dollar industry on vitamins and supplements. Some of them make some intuitive sense. Some there's zero data on. None of them have really high level data. In an ideal world, we would have that data. I think about prostate cancer every day. I've checked my PSA at a relatively young age. I try to make diet and exercise decisions that might impact it, but I do not take any vitamins or supplements because I don't think there's anything out there that has been proven to lower the likelihood. You? Well, I think uh, with a fairly significant Indian diet, including quite a bit of turmeric, I feel like I'm kind of checking that box. But beyond that, Scott, I don't do anything more. You know, exercise, diet, no, nothing kind of directly to decrease my cancer risk for better, for worse. This is great. And, you know, I really appreciate you not letting me kind of pin you into cut points, thresholds, algorithms, because I think you're spot on. You know, this is, there is an art component and that's okay. That's not a bias in the kind of negative way we think about it. You're using your expertise in this area. You're trying to get all the bits of information that you can and combine that into the best decision for the patient. So I, I really appreciate that. And, and you're right, like most things, it's not black and white. It's a lot of gray and you're trying to see what that shade of gray looks like and come up with something actionable, I suppose. Is that fair? Yeah. And I try to think about it and explain it exactly how we did, but the analogy, perhaps lame, perhaps it'll resonate with some people, you know, what's the definition of a good basketball player? What kind of, how many points per game do you have to score to be a good basketball player? Well, it's not just how many points you score. I mean, is it 15 a game, 20 a game, 25, 30, but it's how many turnovers do you have? Is your team winning? Is it your assists, your rebounds? I mean, what's a good free throw shooter? Pick your number. There's no magic threshold. There's a lot of other things that go into it. And I try to do that with PSA screening and many other decisions we make along with our patients. Absolutely. I think it's a perfect analogy. It kind of resonates. You know, it's kind of like a good medical student. It's hard to know what exact bit of information you're, you're kind of focusing on. Well, as we're, as we're kind of getting on an hour here, Scott, any kind of parting thoughts for the listenership regarding PSA screening? You know, I think that the take-home message, if I had my wish to impart on everybody, is try to use all the details. It's often simpler and easier and maybe even shorter discussions in a more efficient clinic if you just say, oh, everyone, regardless of age, with a PSA greater than whatever, we're going to go to the next step. Put yourself in the position where you're the patient. And uh, it's important. And there's, there's a lot of meaning and downstream effects to it. So try to integrate everything, engage the patient, and be thoughtful about it. Perfect. I think you're spot on. Well, I've certainly learned a, a wealth of information over the course of this hour and some things I think that can readily translate into, into my practice. So thanks for sharing your, your thoughts and your wisdom, Scott. Always great to see you and you know, stay warm out there in the middle of February. <laughs> Don't taunt me with your weather. It's been a fun conversation and looking forward to continuing it in person one of these days, Aditya. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Medavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.